In my uh, early 20s, I worked at a box factory up in the Quad Cities, Miller Container. And uh, there was a period of time that I, I worked in one part of the plant where uh, they, made, they made cardboard boxes, you know, fold them up, stuff stuff in them, that type of thing. They made cardboard boxes. Well, my job for a period of time was uh, I, they would take random samples from what was made, and I had to cut a one-inch by two-inch rectangle of cardboard out of a random sample of box, go through a few steps, put it into a press that would squish it down to find out when it broke. And then you'll record all that information. I have to say, that was probably, it ranks up there among one of the most boring jobs I've ever had in my life. To sit around all day long, cut a one inch by two inch square out of a piece of cardboard, stuff it in a machine, and squish it. It was boring. But that was my job. I tell you this story as a way to introduce kind of where we're going today. An idea, a component of today's message. Well, we've begun our study of the book of James in the New Testament. We talked about last week introducing the direction of the overall idea of this, this, this uh, letter that James wrote to the church. We learned last week that he wrote this letter to Christians who were scattered because of persecution that was going on at the time. And he wrote it to encourage the believers to remain unyielding in their faith. That our world is constantly pressing in on us. Our lives even sometimes are pressing in on us to conform to a different way other than what it is that God has created us for. What it is that as Christ followers, He's called us to a better life. Interacting with other people better. Kind of as we talked about in the Together series that we looked at over the past couple months. But that's the idea, is that uh, the book, book of James, the letter of James in the New Testament, is that it is to encourage us to be an, have an unyielding faith, to not conform in our faith. Well, today we're digging into, we're starting into looking at the book of James and looking at the verses in there. And over the next couple months here, we're going to pick it apart section by section, looking at every verse in there to figure out how is it and what is it that we can learn from it to apply into our lives today. So if you have your Bibles, uh, we'll be getting there in just a moment. We're not there right now, but you can go ahead and turn to James chapter 1, verse 1. Uh, that's where we'll be starting. If you're following along with the YouVersion app, the verses will be listed in there when we get to that point. In that day, uh, James's day, when he wrote the, this letter, he was writing to people, as I just said a moment ago, he was writing to people who were under uh, pretty intense persecution for their faith in Christ. I was just reading just this past week uh, an article that was talking about how uh, right now in the world, Christianity is the number one persecuted religion in the world. As a matter of fact, it is getting so bad that some are saying it's approaching genocidal levels in some areas of the world. In other words, entire peoples are being killed because of their faith. Now here in America, we don't experience it quite that bad. But nonetheless, even though there's not that kind of pressure put on us, there's still a pressure to conform to the world around us. There's still a, a pressure applied to us to yield to its way of thinking. And James was writing to people who were going through similar pressure as what other parts of the world today are going through. On a very basic level, for because of their faith, they were pressured to maybe not be so open about their faith or, or maybe even turn away from their faith completely. Some of that pressure resulted if they didn't turn away, maybe they would be ostracized from their community. Now in today's world, in America especially, we don't really grasp the, the fullness of what that means. In that day, to be excluded from your community was significant. It meant that you didn't get the support system that they relied on in that day. 
You didn't get the the friendships that you relied on in that day. Another level of uh, persecution that they may have experienced, something else that may have come at them was if, if, they, if they didn't keep their faith quiet or they didn't turn away from Christ, they may, they may be at risk of losing their possessions. They may have their possessions confiscated or even their house. And even on a, a, another level, they may even lose their freedoms if they didn't turn from Christ or they didn't keep their faith quiet. They may be put in prison. But then even some of them, many of them actually, experienced yet a final level of persecution. That if they didn't keep their faith quiet or they didn't turn from, their, from, from faith in Christ, they may be put to death. And for some of them, it was, it was another level of that to make it even worse. Their family may be put to death. See, they, we don't face some of those same pressures today that they did, but you know, we still face pressures in America And James wrote to those believers as something that we can learn from for ourselves today to apply. He wrote to encourage them, to strengthen them as they face those pressures. He encouraged them not to succumb to the pressure to conform to the world. He challenged them to remain faithful to Christ no matter what came their way. He challenged them to have an unyielding faith. So as we're moving through this today, that's what we're looking at, is having an unyielding faith. So here we go, jumping into James chapter 1, starting in verse 1. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes scattered among the nations, greetings. Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. Perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. I want to pause there. It's a couple things for us to unpack in these verses before we go any further in understanding some of the, the principles of what he was teaching us through this. First of all, the trials that he was talking about here, they weren't necessarily bad things. And in the English language, we hear the word trials and we think of something that is bad. But James's word here, It was neither good nor bad. They they were just talking about events of life. Things that happen that may be good, may be bad. And he's saying, consider it pure joy when those things that test your faith come into your life. In In the book, Word Pictures in the New Testament, they talked about it this way. Trials rightly faced are harmless, but wrongly met are temptations to evil. You see, the issue is how it is that we approach or respond to those trials of life, those things that come into our life. And throughout the letter of James, or, yeah, throughout the letter of James, James seemed to be pointing to uh, talking about how many of those believers they were very poor people, or at the minimum they were even oppressed believers. And James seemed to be pointing to those people in particular throughout the whole letter. And I believe that the principle of this teaching can be applied to us today even if you wouldn't label yourself as poor or poverty or you don't look into your life and you, you, see, or you, look into your life and you don't see any uh, oppression or persecution happening. I believe the principles that he is talking about here are, are things that we can still learn from for our lives. Remember, we are all under pressure to give way to maybe sinful habits, maybe give way to uh, taking an approach in our faith that is not in line with Scripture. Our oppression might not look like theirs, 
But it was there nonetheless, and it was something that we have to deal with. Furthermore, James is pointing to trials that come at us from the outside, not trials that come from inside. So not talking about things that we wrestle with in our mind, but things that are kind of pushed onto us. Maybe it's ideologies. Maybe it's pressure to conform in other ways. Students especially have this issue in school. They have pressure from their peers to behave and think certain ways. But James's word here is talking about pressures that come at us from the outside. In a little bit, we'll get to a verse where he talks about the pressures that we feel from the inside. But for this part of it, he's talking about those that come at us from the outside. Second, did you notice that James said to consider it pure joy when you face those trials of life? On the surface, the idea sounds a bit weird, doesn't it? A bit off. I mean, I don't know about you, but when my car breaks down, I don't do the happy dance. When I get sick or somebody in my family gets sick, I'm not throwing a party. When somebody I care about is suffering a loss, I'm not having a celebration. I don't see how it is then on the surface, how it is we can consider those things joyful and be able to consider the trials joyful. And he says to consider them pure joy, 100% joy. So what's he talking about in here? Well, the word that he used, it indicated to view the situation, as I said, with complete joy. The situation with complete joy. Not the trial itself, but to find joy in the midst of the situation. So, what's an antonym of joy? Well, one of the antonyms of joy, opposite idea, is the idea of worry. Worry is powerful stuff. And it makes sense that James would be helping them to overcome the potential for worry here at the very beginning of the letter. With all the, the, the oppression they were feeling, all the pressure to conform or to walk away from the faith, he wanted them not to find worry as their center or central emotion, but instead joy. But as I said, worry is powerful stuff, isn't it? I talked about a book last week by Robert Jeffress called uh, Choose Your Attitude, Change Your Life. In there, he talked about this concept of worry. And he shared how the founder of the Mayo Clinic said that somewhere, in his opinion, somewhere between 25 to 30% of people who are in hospital beds worried themselves there. Interesting concept. Did you know during World War II that approximately 250,000 American soldiers died? At the same time, during the same uh, uh, World War II time frame, approximately 2 million Americans died of cardiovascular diseases. Many doctors speculate that between a third and a half of those deaths, cardiovascular deaths, a third to a half of them were worry-related. So in other words, it's possible that up to a million people in America died, you could say, during World War II because of worry. Uh, almost four times as many people died than what died in the war. War is powerful stuff. It can directly shape us and affect us in significantly negative ways. Jeffress went on in the book, and he, said, he wrote this. He says, Though there may not be much basis for worry, it nevertheless can cause us to lose all sense of perspective. Someone has once said that worry is a thin stream of fear trickling through the mind. If encouraged, it cuts a channel into which all other thoughts are drained. The word worry comes from the German word which means to strangle. 
Worry literally strangles us spiritually and emotionally and even physically. Author Corey Tenboom once said, Worry doesn't empty tomorrow of its sorrows. It empties today of its strength. Worry's powerful stuff. And here at the beginning, James is challenging his readers, encouraging them. He, you can almost read between the lines, though he doesn't say these words. Don't let worry be your center of emotions as you go through the trials of life. Instead, consider them joy. Find joy. The alternative in difficult trials is worry, and, and worry is never really helpful. So James says, be joyful in the trials of life, not because of them, but in them. We're not to be joyous because, say, maybe multiple appliances break down at the same time. We're not to be joyous because maybe our hours were cut at work or maybe we lost our job. We're not to be joyous because of those bad things, but rather, James is challenging us, find joy. Choose joy in the middle of your trials. Because worry, worry creates a lot of problems and doesn't bring about any help. Choose joy in the midst of the difficulties that you face for one specific reason. And James stated that reason in here. He stated that those difficulties are happening in our life for a purpose, for a reason. What we go through, those trials, good and bad, those things that test our faith, they happen for a purpose. You see, the word that James used here is not the same word that I used at the beginning of today's message when I talked about that job I had in my 20s. See, the job I had in my 20s, I was testing those pieces of cardboard to find out when they would break. But the word James used, it doesn't mean that. Rather, the word James used, it means to prove it will succeed. Do you see the difference there? I put that little chunk of cardboard in the press to find out when it will break. But James says the testing of your faith because of those trials, it's to prove that your faith is genuine, to prove that it is real, to prove that it is authentic, to prove that it will succeed. There's a big difference in there. Based on the rest of what James goes on to write throughout the rest of the letter of James, sometimes God is the one who brings about those difficulties in life. That God sometimes brings those tests into our life. And we have to make sure that we don't fall into the, the false ideology that says, I'm having a trial in my life right now because I sinned. God is punishing me right now. Because that's not how God works. God doesn't punish you because of your sin like that. He may bring difficult times in, or He may at the minimum allow difficult times, but it's not because you sinned. It's from His, his immense love for you. He wants you to become better than you are. He wants you to mature in your faith, develop in your faith. God wants us to see that our faith is something that we can count on. And not because of us, but rather because of God. Faith, you see, looks to God for the strength, not to ourselves. There's a big difference in that one as well. See, God allows those difficulties of life sometimes and sometimes even brings them in because of His love for us. 
because He wants better for us. You see, we need to yield to God in our trials so we can grow through our trials. So let's continue on, picking it up now in verse 5. James wrote these words. He says, If any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to him. But when he asks, that's a person asking, when he asks, he must believe and not doubt, because he who doubts is like a wave of the sea, blown and tossed by the wind. That man should not think he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all he does. You see, we need to yield to God in our trials to gain wisdom. We need to yield to God in the middle of our trials so that we can gain wisdom. See, I, I don't know about you, but I know for me it's, it, this is the case. Is one of, when one of those trials comes into life, when something breaks down again, when something is going wrong in life again, I want wisdom. I want to know what is the best course of action given this situation. What is it I should do given what's going on right now? I want wisdom to know how to handle my situation. We all want wisdom when things are going haywire, when the world seems to be falling apart. And James told his readers, and us as well, that when life is going a bit crazy, turn to the source of wisdom and ask for it from Him. You see, God is the source of wisdom. He is the true source of wisdom. And, and He loves giving wisdom. Wisdom, you see, is an attribute of God's. In other words, it's part of who He is. God is wisdom. And the Bible is full of stories about God giving His wisdom to those who want it. I mean, if you look in 1 Kings chapter 4, you read about Solomon and how it is that God gave him wisdom to lead the nation of Israel. And he was one of the wisest men, if not the wisest man who ever lived. You've got in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 17, Paul is praying for the church in Ephesus. And what does he pray for? Among other things, he prays that they would have wisdom, that God would give them wisdom for their decisions. Proverbs 1-9 through talk a whole lot about in those chapters about wisdom and how that we should be pursuing wisdom and seeking after it and gaining wisdom. As if God seems to be trying to tell us that that's something we should have and wisdom comes from God. It's only fitting then for James here at the beginning of the letter that he's writing to encourage believers who are struggling because of the persecution they're going through, struggling because of the pressure that is applied to them, as he's challenging them to have an unyielding faith, that he challenges them to gain wisdom and to ask God for that wisdom. God gives wisdom a few different ways. Whenever it is that we ask Him for wisdom, there's a few different ways that He can give wisdom. The first and primary source of wisdom that we should always go to is God's Word. That is where we can find the wisdom that we need to make the decisions for life. This is why I'm always challenging us and encouraging us to make sure that we are regularly reading our Bibles. Because that's where we're going to find wisdom for the decisions of life. Wisdom to be able to make the right choices in the middle of our difficulties. In the middle of the trials that we all face. The principles for life, for wisdom, wise choices, they're found in the Bible. Seek them out. Second source of wisdom that God gives when we ask Him for it 
is godly counsel. Proverbs 19.20 says, Listen to advice and accept instruction. And in the end, you will be wise. See, godly men who are personally seeking God's wisdom are a great source to go to for wisdom as well. So the next time a trial of life comes along and you're not too sure what the best course of action is, seek out somebody or multiple somebodies who are regularly reading their Bible, who are regularly talking with God in prayer. Ask them what it is they see God saying would be the best course of action. Ask them for wisdom in the middle of your situation that you're facing. Third source of wisdom, when we ask God for wisdom, is found from God Himself. You see, if you are a Christ follower, God is living inside of you. The Holy Spirit. God is inside of you, and He he wants to give you the wisdom that you're lacking in this given situation that you're facing, or you will face. Do you notice how James wrote it here, though? He said, God gives the wisdom. God does. God is the source of that wisdom. It's not that it comes from our own mind, our own intuition. If that's where it's coming from, it's a possibility. It may not be the wisest choice. But if it is coming from God, then you know it is wise. How can we know something is from God? Well, you've heard me say this multiple times, and I'll say it yet again, and I'll continue saying it. If when you go to God in prayer, if you feel like God is telling you to do something in answer to your prayer, but that something does not line up with what the Bible teaches, know beyond a shadow of a doubt God did not tell you that. God will never, I cannot stress that enough, God will never tell you to do something that does not go in line with His character as revealed in the Bible. So, the next time that you find yourself facing a situation and you need wisdom for it, ask God to give you wisdom. If you spent time in this Word, it'll be a whole lot easier to determine those thoughts that are going through your mind. The Holy Spirit will guide you inwardly to the right choice. Seek godly counsel. Talk to other people who are actively reading their Bibles and praying. You see, yielding to God in our trials grows us in wisdom through our trials. Seeking God through His Word, through prayer, through godly counsel will help us to grow, to mature, to grow up in our ability to have, make wise decisions. James goes on, picking up in verse 9. The brother in humble circumstances ought to take pride in his high position, but the one who is rich should take pride in his low position because he will pass away like a wildflower. For the sun rises with scorching heat and withers the plant. Its blossom falls and its beauty is destroyed. In the same way, the rich man will fade away even while he goes about his business. So we need to yield our possessions to God in the middle of our trials as well. All that we have that we consider ours. We need to yield to God in the middle of our situations so we can grow through that as well. And here James is offering an encouragement to both the poor, that's a person in low circumstances, as well as the wealthy. You see, poverty, that's that's one of those external trials that James was talking about back in verse 2. That's something that is, you could say, outwardly applied to us. And James says to consider even that as pure joy. His advice is to find complete joy in what God is doing in and through your trial that you're facing in the middle of your poverty. 
Because of poverty, the reality is you now are leaning more on God. You are relying more on God to step in. Choose then to find joy in where it is that you are and in the relationship that God is developing with you. God has brought even the believer who is, uh, well, for the believer who's in the poor situation, He has brought that person to a higher level of relationship with Him than what somebody who may not be in poverty would ever experience. The poor must rely more on God for the provision in ways that the wealthy may not ever have to come face to face with. Because of the reality of their poverty, their faith is stretched, it is molded, it is expanded, it is matured. Because of the poverty they face, they get to encounter and interact with God in new ways. Various points I know in my own life, in my family, for Stephanie and I, we have found ourselves on that poverty level. And some of you may know all about that. You know, where you're hanging on by your fingernails just barely. Your nose is not above water financially. It's below water. And you're just barely hanging on. I couldn't tell you how many times that we have gone to God in those situations and God has expanded our faith. I couldn't tell you how many times we have talked with God and only God about a situation that we were facing that we were because we were in poverty. And God came through. God answered the prayer. Nobody else knew about those situations. I couldn't tell you how many times that we had financially, we came to the end of the month, but long ago it ran out of money. And the exact amount of money that we needed came in the mail from somebody else who chose to give. I mean, even several years ago, we found ourselves on the verge of having to live on the street. No job, no income. We were poor. God provided. You see, when, when you find yourself in those difficult times, what ends up happening is the same thing that happened for Stephanie and I. Your faith grows. You end up drawing closer to God in ways that you may never have any other time. God has brought us oftentimes through things that, well, sometimes you just can't know about until you go through them. So concerning the wealthy, though, James' statement, it's often misunderstood. Sometimes people think that James here is condemning the wealthy, but that's not at all the case. Rather, James is encouraging the wealthy in the middle of their situations. For the wealthy, they have been brought to a low position worth celebrating. For the believer who finds themselves wealthy, hopefully by this point, you've come to understand that wealth, riches, well, they're deceptive. They're, they're not the end all of life. And you've also come to understand that that isn't where you should place your hope. That God has given you what you've, you've got, well, for a reason. That the wealth is here today and gone tomorrow. That the things of value, they don't revolve around money or things. And that's why they can take pride in their low position. So I would say this, if you find yourself as a poor person or a wealthy person, most specifically, if you find yourself as a wealthy person, you probably already understand at this point, if you're a Christ follower, that God didn't give you the wealth just for you. Paul talked about this in uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, that God blesses us so we can be a blessing to other people. 
And that if God has blessed you with wealth, that it's likely so you can be a blessing to somebody else. You get to be like those people who helped us through those difficult times that we've been in. See, if God has blessed you with money, you can be that blessing to other people. And you need to understand, especially in today's world in America, this is not socialism. Socialism takes from some people to give to others. But that's not at all what James is talking about here. He's talking about loving God so much and loving others so much that you freely give what you have to help other people. Big difference between those two as well. See, when we give back, you'll give this example. When you give the, the, the money in the offering plate or through the Square Cash app, when you give back to God through this church, did you know that part of your money that you give is going to help poor people? Give one example. There's a mission that we support in Chicago that helps poverty-stricken moms. So when you give money in the offering plate, did you know you're giving to the poor in that way? And us in America, for the most part, I've been to visit a few other poor countries. I've been to Honduras and I've been to Haiti, and I'll tell you what, that's poverty. As poor as I've ever been in America, it pales in comparison to that. All of us are wealthy. God has given us what He's given us so we can be a blessing to other people. And yielding to God, yielding our trial to God, in the middle of our, our difficulties, yielding our, yielding our wealth to God in the middle of our trials, it will help us to grow our faith in those trials. We emerge on the other side when we've yielded our, our possessions and our wealth to Him. We emerge on the other side with a greater appreciation of what God has given us of whose wealth it is that we have. You see, if you call yourself a Christian, when you went down to the baptismal waters, you gave everything to God. And God gave back to you to be a steward of what it is that you have. So what we have, we have because God chose to give it to us. And we need to yield our possessions and our wealth to God, especially in our trials, so that we can grow through our trials. Verse 12, Blessed is the man who perseveres under trial, because when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. Yielding to God in our trials develops perseverance. Yielding to God in our trials develops perseverance. That word that's translated as perseverance, the Greek word means to continue in an activity or state despite resistance and opposition. Translated as to continue, to remain, to endure, or to persevere. It gives the idea of pushing on to the end, be it the end of the difficulty, but even pushing on to the end of our life without giving in to the pressure. For those who continue steadfast in their faith under trials, they are blessed. Or another way of translating that word is happy. They find joy. Not only are we to choose joy in the middle of our trials, but the cool thing is God is at work so that if we persevere to the end, if we live an unyielding faith to God through the trials, then in the end God gives us His joy. He gives us a joy that goes beyond our comprehension. Yielding to God in our trials will help us to learn perseverance. Now, perseverance will be a source of joy or blessing 
But we'll struggle here. We will struggle intensely in this area if we miss one core ingredient, our love for God. If we love God, we will be able to persevere through those difficulties. We won't find ourselves falling so easily because of our love for God. Seems to be the condition almost for receiving God's blessing. Is when we love God, we will trust Him. And trust will naturally flow and grow through our trials, enabling us to better yield to Him, to better persevere through our trials. Yielding to God in our trials will help us to grow through our trials to develop perseverance. James continues, verse 13, When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does He tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when, by his own evil desire, he is dragged away and enticed. Then, after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. You see, we need to yield to God in our trials so we don't fall into temptation. We need to yield to God in our trials so we don't fall into temptation. See, James here shifts gears again for us. Where up to this point, he's been talking about those pressures that are from the outside, the trials of life. Here he makes a shift. Now we're talking about the pressures from within, the temptations. Where the first word that was translated in verse 2 pointed to things that were neither good nor bad, now as he jumps over and uses the word temptations instead of the word trials, it carries the word temptation, it carries a negative tone. Almost, you could say, even a sinful tone. Remember, testing that James talks about, it's meant to prove that we would succeed. The temptations here, they're not from God. It's vitally important to remember this as we're looking at the testing of our faith. James seems to be going out of his way to make this point that God isn't taking you through the difficulties that you're going through so that you'll fall flat on your faith. He's not taking you through the difficulties of life to tempt you into sin. That's not how God works. God is not about those sorts of things. That's not something He would ever do. Rather, James points out where our temptations that we face as we go through the trials of life, where does it they come from and the result of following them. James here uses a word that I talked about last week from uh, 1 John chapter 2. Where in that passage, it was translated as lust. Here, it's translated as evil desires. You could almost say that this is where the rubber meets the road in our faith. Whether it is that we will succumb to the pressure that is from within, the temptations that we feel to believe or feel or do in some way that does not match God's character. This is where we're pushed from within to become less than God intended. God isn't taking you through the difficulties so that you'll be tempted to sin. God isn't bringing things into your life just to make you fall flat. That is not God's character. Rather, He is pointing out here that we are not to give in to those temptations. That when we give in to those desires during those trials of life, well, it ends up developing into something we don't want. 
When we give in to those temptations, it leads to sin. And if we follow along sin's course, it leads to death, spiritual death. We don't want to give in to the temptations that we feel inwardly. But the next time that you find yourself in a trial of life, the difficult situation, and you feel that there is a temptation to compromise your faith in some capacity, remember this passage. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 10.13. He said this, He said, God is faithful. You can almost stop right there, but I'm not going to because neither did Paul. God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, He will also provide a way out so you can stand up under it. See, God won't cause temptation to happen in our life. He might not even stop the temptation. But there's one thing that we can know for sure. God is faithful. So if you find yourself in a difficulty in life, you feel the temptation to sin, to go against God's design, go against God's character. Look for God at work because God has provided the way out of the situation. You're not stuck there. You're not locked into going into that temptation. Look for God's leading in your life so you can get out of that temptation. A right approach to the trials of life then results in spiritual maturity. Maturity of the faith. A wrong approach, giving in to our desires, it can lead to spiritual death. And I have known people who have walked away from God because the trials of life came and they gave in. They they yielded to the trials rather than having an unyielding faith. I once had a conversation, and I'm positive there was more to this than what the person shared with me. The person had been a minister in a church, and he had prayed one day that his wife would have a good day. She didn't. And I'm positive there had to be more to his life than just what he shared. But as a result of her not having that good day that he prayed for, they determined God did not exist. So they walked away from God. Sounds a bit crazy, doesn't it? Let me give you another one. Family I know who their child has chosen a way of life that goes contrary to what the Bible teaches. They're faced with that reality, the trial of life. They unfortunately gave in to the desire to please their child. And instead they have begun warping and twisting Scripture to make it so it would fit to accept their child. They have condoned what God said is wrong and said, well, it's okay. They've twisted the whole ideas of Scripture, walked away from what the truth is. They gave in to the temptation, to the trials that we face. They bring about all sorts of different things for us Pressure from without, but as James talks about here, pressure from within to conform to the world's ideologies. Yielding to God in our trials will help us grow through our trials. I want to wrap up James, uh, today's message on James with one final word that James has here to encourage the believers he was writing to about those trials of life. Verses 16 through 18, James said this. He says, Don't be deceived, my dear brothers. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. He chose to give us birth 
through the word of truth, that we might be a kind of first fruits of all he created. You see, yielding to God in our trials will help us grow through our trials. God is at work in those who are yielded to him in the difficulties of life to bring about his perfect plan. When we yield to God in trials of life, we end up growing through them. But here's a cool side benefit. As a Christ follower, this should be one of your desires as well as to help make more disciples. That's what God has given all believers to do. Well, here's the cool thing that happens. is If you're a Christ follower and you go through those difficulties of life, when you persevere, when you live an unyielding faith, but instead you're yielding to God, you know, the people around you, they, they watch you. They watch to see how it is that you handle those difficulties. What is it that you do in those difficulties? Where do you find your strength in those difficulties? They watch to see how God works in you and what He does. What God does in your life may, may be the very thing that helps somebody else to recognize that God is an awesome God and He loves us beyond comprehension. God doesn't take us through the trials of life so that we would fall short. God doesn't take us through the trials of life so that He'll find out at what point we break. No, the trials of life are to prove to us that our faith is real, that it is genuine, that our faith is authentic because of who it is we have faith in. It is also to prove to the people around us that God is real. Your life, when you persevere through the trials, your life is a witness to the people around you of God's goodness. And God is good. Let word, James's words be encouragement to you this week. Yield to God in your trials. Because when you do, that's one of those components of having an unyielding faith.